I'd like to acknowledge Melanie Ross. Melanie, are you here? And the CME executive for planning this uh, exceptional program. I'm going to chat a bit today about myopia and the, the pitfalls or potential challenges of myopia in the context of cataract surgery. I have no financial interests. Categorizing myopia, we really have two major categories. Simple myopia, which is an imbalance of roughly less than five diopters refractive error between axial length and refractive power. And in general, for most of our um, patients who are undergoing cataract surgery, these can typically be treated as routine in the absence of any frank retinal pathology. And I'm certainly not going to try to give you any tips on how to perform cataract surgery, how to man manage patients' refractions in the context of cataract surgery. I'm really here to talk about what can happen in the setting of pathologic myopia, degenerative, malignant, or high myopia. And this term is really a, it's, it's, it's a broad term. It's been characterized differently by many people through the years. It really is excessive axial elongation of the eye at the aura equatorial region and the posterior pole. Starting typically, depending on the definition you look at, around 25 and a half millimeters, um, minimally minus five diopters and more. And their characteristic posterior pole findings. And the main challenge for cataract surgery outcomes rests with managing this group appropriately. The epidemiology of myopia is significant. It's, it's an issue for up to 25% of our North American population, but it causes legal blindness and is about seven, the seventh leading cause of legal blindness. When we look at specific pathologic myopia, it varies greatly with ethnicity and um, region in the world. Higher prevalence in Asia. Egypt has a very low prevalence, for example, whereas just across the Mediterranean and Spain, we see a rate of almost 10% pathologic myopia in the general population. And if you look at specific subpopulations, such as college students in Taiwan, the prevalence is high as 24%. And the risk factors really are both hereditary and environmental. There have been um, significant genetic studies on autosomal dominant loci involving numerous chromosomes that are highly correlated with pathologic myopia. There even is an X-linked locus as well. And we know that there are um, inherited conditions such as Marfans and Sticklers and Ehlers-Danlos that have strong association with high myopia. But in addition to this, near work and education have also been really studied in, in great detail, have been shown to be very, very strongly correlated with advanced myopia. So we have a structural defect here in a genetic makeup that is then modified strongly by the environment, um, but different environmental triggers than we would usually expect for conditions that look a bit like this in advanced situations such as AMD. Pathologic myopia. The actual elongation can increase the intraocular volume by at least 50%. And we see severe vision loss, primarily macular, but also related to the optic nerve. Um, these are the primary causes that we're worried about in the setting of approaching a patient with high myopia who requires cataract surgery. Obviously, the nerve is very difficult to assess in these patients, and often intraocular pressures are appropriately, inappropriately low in terms of tonometry. Most of the pathology we see is actually RPE-mediated. Most of the pathology comes from a defect or pathology affecting the retinal pigment epithelium in the cord underneath it. Staphyloma affects the RPE directly. RPE atrophy is de facto an RPE disease. Coronia vasculation and flute fuchs are related to the Brooks um, RPE complex breakdown, as are lacquer cracks, idiopathic subretinal hemorrhages. And there's another category of vision loss that is vitreous related, um, associated with macular schesis, macular detachments, and macular holes. I want to focus a little bit on staphyloma because this is really the key pathologic structural change in high myopia that we really have to talk about. Um, 
We can see it as a tessellation or a thinning of the RPE back in the back of the eye. We can, under biomicroscopy, appreciate the three-dimensionality of the outpouching in the back of the eye. Um, it's very important, obviously, in terms of surgical risk. If you're ever doing a retrobulbar block for a patient who requires that, um, it has to be very careful um, in terms of managing that. And a preoperative B-scan may be of some benefit. Obviously, with topical approaches, this is not an issue anymore. Um, but staphyloma really underlies most of the RPE-related pathology that we see, and it is very predictive of long-term visual outcomes for patients who have myopia. Here's uh, Curtin's chart. Um, Curtin wrote the first book on myopia called The Myopias back in the 60s, and a lot of his work looked at characterizing staphylomas, and we can see here that the percentage of patients with really definable, strong staphyloma presence decreases quite significantly once you're down in the 26 millimeter range. And by, once you're over 30, your risk of having a significant staphyloma is very, very high. And there are many different types of staphyloma. There's the typical posterior pole staphyloma, or characterized as type 1. Then there's just more of a macular staphyloma, which is type 2. There can be simply a peripapillary staphyloma, which is type 3. And then there's an inverse staphyloma that tends to affect the nasal retina and not the macula. And then there can be eccentric staphylomas that may or may not involve the nerve, and then compound staphylomas where you have a staphyloma within a staphyloma where your basic outpouching is supplemented by a subsequental outpouching beyond that. And here's a clinical example of an eccentric um, staphyloma. It's kind of interesting in this case because you can see the ring of RPE thinning at the edge of the staphyloma, and then within the bed of the staphyloma, more significant RPE loss. What's kind of interesting in this patient is that there is actually a macular um, neurosensory detachment with some lipid here. And the initial question we had was, does this patient have a net arising off the edge of the staphyloma? And here's more of a direct picture of the staphyloma. Very odd appearance. This patient's vision was significantly down, not because there was a net. In fact, angiography um, and ICG sort of showed no evidence of a choroidal neovascular membrane. But simply the mechanical stretching of the RPE over the edge of this dense, deep staphyloma was enough to drop this patient's vision to the 2100 range in the absence of any significant neovascular process or secondary pathology, and also was enough to cause there to be some outflow or pump deficiencies in the macular region secondary to the staphyloma effects on the RPE and the paramacula. So staphyloma itself can cause significant visual loss in the absence of any of the other secondary causes of vision loss and high myopia. Here's a wide-angle optos photograph of pathologic myopia and a staphyloma in the center. You can see here the staphyloma stands out quite nicely against the, the darker background of the more normal peripheral RPE and eye wall. You can also see quite nicely the way that there are RPE disruptions centrally, but also, in this case, well out to the mid-periphery. This is a previous tear that had been lasered on the nasal side. When we look under autofluorescence, we can see, again, the more extensive RPE changes that we might see in high myopia that we would not be typically seeing just with color imaging or direct visualization. So um, with some of these new imaging modalities, certainly are options for visualizing the RPE status um, more, care more carefully and actually quantifying changes over time that we didn't have before. So when we look at predicting surgical outcomes in the context of high myopia, we know that pseudophagia is, is a great benefit to patients who have high myopia in terms of quality of life. And when cataract develops, it makes sense to proceed. But many hidden posterior pole changes can impact our surgical results we've started to talk about. And we can't assume that the vision is down in any of these patients simply on the basis of the lens changes. 
if you look in the back of a patient's eye and you see a strong foveal re reflex and the macular RPE looks to be completely intact and you don't see a staphyloma, your axial length is in the 25 millimeter range, you don't really have to worry about these patients, I don't think. The challenge is identifying those patients where the macular pathology is the reason for the decreased vision. And, you know, we always have red flags go up when we have asymmetry in vision in the context of symmetrical, nerve, symmetrical lens changes. Um, the challenge is when you have bilateral pathology, and many of the myopic pathologies can be bilateral. So is the vision really down due to those early lens changes, or are we actually seeing the vision be coming down because of progressive macular pathology? That's the challenge. And the reason that these posterior pull findings are difficult to diagnose is that when you look in the eye, typically our stereobiomicroscopy is limited. We've got a very, very thin retina. And the RPE underlying it is also thin, typically. And so it's very hard to pick up um, contrast between the retina and the underlying RPE. It'd be very difficult to pick up even more obvious findings, such as a macular hole. So typically, we'd start with an OCT, but this can be very technically difficult to perform and interpret. And as you can tell, the images are not obviously nice and flat like we get in normal OCTs. The images can be significantly shrunken. We often get backscatter at the corners where we're getting flipping of the images at the edges of the macular region. And we also are dealing with a number of, of issues in terms of interpreting the thinness of the tissues. So OCT on its own may not be enough. Now, I think angiography is typically used in coronary vascular settings, and we're all comfortable with that use of angiography. And I think it's really important to keep fluorescing angiography or ICG angiography in your mind just because OCT doesn't tend to show a lot of fluid, whether it's intraretinal or subretinal in the setting of neovascularization and myopia. And we'll talk about why that is, but it relates to the very low flow setting of, of the choroid in these eyes and the very thin atrophic choroid that we see in enhanced depth imaging in these types of myopic eyes. There is some benefit to autofluorescence, as I've shown, and I think you should keep that part of your armamentarium. And I think optost imaging under B-scan might be helpful in larger staphylomas to fully delineate the extent and the, the, per, the full extent of the uh, RPE and uh, staphylomas damage. This is a Heidelberg wide-field composite image looking at a, at a posterior pole. The basic geographic areas of atrophy are pretty visualizable, but the nice thing is we can start to see areas like in here where there are early RPE changes that look normal clinically, but we're starting to pick up pathology in the paramacular region in new areas that are likely to end up having future damage. And I think that benefit of these autofluorescent testings is very helpful in these patients. So when we talk about the causes, the specific causes of vision loss, I'll just run through a few of them. The main ones right now, obviously atrophic maculopathy, RPE degeneration is the most common finding in pathologic myopia. And the degree of RPE loss determines what the final vision is going to be. We looked at about 300 patients who had over 26 millimeters of axial length and found that some central RPE atrophy was present in almost 60% of these patients. Now, interestingly, in our patient population, most were female. The average age was not that old, about 50 years. The ethnicity was strongly tilted towards the Asian population. Refractive length in these eyes was about 28, 29 millimeters, and the refraction was about minus 11. And this is one of our patients we followed over time. This is a typical diffuse atrophic maculopathy. Um, interesting thing is over the course of five to six years, this is what happens in this particular individual. Diffuse, progressive RPE loss, and a situation where you've got a patient now with significant panmacular vision loss. The associations we found in our study that are really important to realize is that age is a very small incremental increase in macular RPE atrophy, about 2% increase per year. 
Female gender, however, in our study showed a, double, a doubling of the risk of RPE loss centrally. And as the axial length increased, about a 70% increase per millimeter that was going millimeter progression forward. However, when we looked at the presence of a central staphyloma, this was the strongest predictor for RPE loss. So really almost, it was roughly about 80% of our central RPE loss was directed to specifically by the presence of a central staphyloma. Moving on to choroidal neovascularization. As I mentioned earlier, um, choroidal thinning um, with secondary choroidal ischemia and inflammatory markers have now been identified in association with choroidal neovascularization in the presence of myopia. This creates um, the perfect milieu for the development of neovascularization. Lacquer cracks and associated choroidal atrophy obviously can increase this process and forward it along, and it makes um, sometimes more difficult to actually see the neovascularization when you start to see RPE pathology associated with it, and very difficult to, to visualize. And um, we still think here, we're typically dealing with a, a unilateral condition, very rarely to see this actively bilateral. But this is what the challenge is when you're looking at situations like this. This is a pretty messy looking macula, and it's hard to see where the neovascularization actually is. Well, in fact, it's this little bit of hyperfluorescence here with some underlying hemorrhage below, and clinically we, we see the hemorrhage. But you can see it's very, it, it leaks very minimally compared to what we see in AND, and the actual amount of hyperfluorescence through the course of the angiogram is somewhat modest. Here's a couple of OCTs. Here's the, the negative on top and the positive down below, but this is a horizontal scan. What's interesting here is you can see the, the mass of the neovascular tissue. We can see on the scan, the red free here, how pigmented and, and encapsulated the net is, and this is pretty typical for high myopia. But what's interesting is the overlying neurosensory retina is not thickened, there's no intraretinal edema, there's no subretinal fluid, none of the characteristic features we'd see with neovascular AMD are present. And just, just FYI, what is kind of neat here is when we shoot through the, um, through the areas of macular RPE loss, we get this penetration of our light signal and our laser signal quite deep, and these, these deeper spikes below the choroidal level are pretty characteristic for associated RPE loss, so it's a way that you can use the OCT to determine the extent and the severity of RPE loss in these patients. So the clinical features, as I mentioned, are different than AMD in the choroidal neovascular setting. They tend to be lighter colored than membranes surrounded with a pigment ring. Hemorrhage is minimal. They tend to be hard exudates are almost never seen, as are PEDs are very rarely seen. Serous detachments are shallower. There's less intraretinal fluid. The size tends to be smaller, probably due to attenuated choroidal blood supply. Although as patients get older, we tend to get more of an overlap between the two conditions. The natural history is poor. Most patients lose significant vision by five years, mostly associated with a RPE atrophy that surrounds these lesions over time. The treatment, extrafoveal lesions, Sebran has studied the, the largest series. They tend to just extend, extend. Your laser scars get worse and worse, extend towards the macula. Lesions recur. It's not a good treatment. PDT was used about five to ten years ago. It was shown to be possibly better for the first couple of years, but doesn't do well. And really right now we've got anti-VEGF as the treatment of choice. There are a number of RCTs that have shown a significant improvement of acuity. Two to three lines, it seems to be maintained up to two years. And there isn't the secondary RPE loss that accompanies thermal laser or PDT. A fuchs spot initially should probably be called a Forrester spot because Fuchs didn't describe it till almost 40 years after Forrester described it. But it's a small mound, excuse me, of RPE proliferation consistent with an inactive phase of a choroidal neovascular membrane. So that's all that is. And this is the classic Fuchs spot, central, localized, non-leaky lesion 
basically an attenuated, involuted neovascular membrane. Lacquer cracks are a very common cause of idiopathic macular hemorrhage in, in myopes. They tend to radiate from the macula in a reticular pattern. Um, CNV can develop from these breaks. And um, really, visual acuity will depend on where the lacquer cracks actually occur. And in this patient, you can see lacquer cracks right through the foveal region. And with this, obviously, there'll be more severe vision loss than with a lacquer crack that is eccentric. So getting back to the causes of vision loss, we've touched on the, ma the major RPE-related and Brooks membrane-related pathologies, and I'm just going to touch briefly now on the vitreous-mediated pathologies, such as macular schesis, macular detachments, and macular holes. Basically, in most of the epiretinal causes of macular vision loss, the contracted posterior hyaloid is causative, and this occurs even in the context of an obvious PVD with a Weiss ring. The cortical vitreous does not release in high myopia, and typically the, the progression tends to be from macular schesis to potentially secondary macular detachment, and then possibly even a macular hole development. But the, the holes can certainly be independent of schesis. Schesis can be independent of progression, and there's, there's a lot of overlap in, in these three particular entities. But here's an example of typical myopic macular schesis. The top slide is a little bit more slam dunk. It's pretty obvious. The, the uh, outer plexiform layer, the Mueller cells are traversing the skittic cavity in, in the retina. Clinically, this is going to look normal on, on um, slit lamp biomicroscopy. And schesis can be very subtle. You can see in the, the lower image here where the schesis is very thin, very minor, but there are, there are skittic changes right into the fovea. And in both these cases, you can see the contracted hyaloid here and here, and both of these patients had obvious PVDs clinically. So those ones are subtle and difficult to pick up. Here's a patient that's kind of interesting. This patient has a, it's almost a, a spiral-shaped staphyloma, and centrally, the fovea is quite out of focus. And the reason for that is this patient has a, a schesis with a foveal detachment. Baseline vision can actually be quite good in schesis if the fovea is attached. It can be 20, 60, 27, even better, even as close as 20, 20, 20, 30. Once the fovea detaches, that's when the vision tends to drop very suddenly. And over time, this patient went from a foveal detachment to a foveal detachment with a hole, underwent surgery, and ended up recovering vision back to about 20-30. So these can be operated and can tend to do quite well. The surgery is a bit tricky. No discussion of myopia in the setting of pseudophagia would be complete without detachment. This is just the just a summer up here. Main concern is a pre-existing detachment, I think, that has been missed. Typically, there can be atrophic holes and lattice and the slow progression of myopic um, of peripheral detachment to the macular region that can go unnoticed. So make sure the periphery is examined. I don't think that cataract surgery is a specific synergistic effect on myopia to developing detachment. Cataract increases the risk of subsequent detachment. Myopia increases the risk of detachment. And combined, obviously, there's a greater risk for these people, and postoperative care is appropriately observed in those individuals. So in conclusion, think about the macular status in your high myopes, so surprises don't arise post-op. Staphyloma, RPE disease, should lead to broader imaging, including autofluorescence, possible angiography, consider wide-field optos. Epiretinal pathology plays an important role. It's usually asymmetric, and OCT will often show these quite nicely preoperatively. And again, don't forget about the periphery. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, so Dr. May really can't uh, stay for the panel discussion, so we're going to take a minute uh, just to take questions right now uh, before we move on. So are there any questions for Dr. May at this time?
D David, could you comment on whether peripheral tears should be treated in this condition before cataract surgery if they're asymptomatic? I treat all peripheral tears and high myopes regardless of symptomatology. However, um, you know, the broader question perhaps is atrophic holes and how aggressive we want to be with atrophic holes and lattice that we see traction. I tend to, I tend to prefer to treat. My sense is we're going, you know, you're going to be changing the whole vitreous configuration, composition with the hydration that occurs during cataract surgery, et cetera. I think it's, all, it's, it's always prudent. You know, I have yet to see a patient have a severe complication from, from gentle surrounding peripheral laser in the setting of high myopia. So I think the laser is pretty safe, and I think your risk of an attachment is much greater than the risk of laser. Yeah. Uh, David, I have a question about your patient with the eccentric uh, staphyloma. How did you manage that? Did you put a macular buckle on? Or? <laughs> well, that's really a great comment because there's a, there's a whole new um, series of macular buckles that are being developed. That are, they used to have to pass these strips of silicone down behind the macula, very, very technically challenging surgery. The, they would often slip, um, but there's a bunch of new ones being developed. Um, a couple of Japanese manufacturers have these plates where you can suture them in one quadrant and you can bend the plate back and support the macula. And really the benefit there is I don't think necessarily supporting a whole... I'm sorry, supporting a, a staphyloma per se, um, but, but dealing with some of the, the, the holes, like that one case I showed where you have a hole in the macular detachment, there may be a really good option if your vitrectomy fails to go to that type of an option. Great. Another question, Dr. Yeah. Lee? Uh, to how do you manage the patient with that uh, peripheral uh, retinal lattice degeneration in those patients if they don't have any symptoms at all? Yeah, I think, I think I tend to be a little bit more personally aggressive when I see holes associated with lattice. Just lattice on its own, I'd be probably a little bit less likely to laser. Um, the other factor, too, is whether it's perivascular, I'm a bit more aggressive with perivascular lattice as well. well thank, thank you very much, Dr. Mayweather.